Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Christ is risen. He's Eastering in us today. Amen. Please be seated. If you're like, I'm out of breath. For <laughs> As we worship, the, the root word of worship is to literally kiss, which is in a royal setting where you bend the knee before the king and bare your neck to kiss his hand. We in our worship now lay down our lives before the king. And as we do, Jesus be with you. I want to encourage you during the sermon to send in your texts. Now, the text can be about three things. First, We've been encouraging you to read the book of Ezekiel as we preach through it for these two months. So as you've been reading, maybe you have some questions. So if you have a question about Ezekiel, text it in, and Nick and Danielle will answer those questions. <laughs> Second, today we are going to spend 30 minutes in Ezekiel's leadership development program. And there's going to be some talk about leadership. And so the second kind of question you can text in is, what have you always wanted to know about the leadership at Waterstone? It may be individual things, personalities. What, did you, what do you want to know about any of the pastors? Or what do you want to know about our leadership structure? Anything you've ever wondered about the leadership at Waterstone, text that in. Third, any healthy church has a leadership structure which the congregation and the leaders are working together and it looks something like what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 17. This is the goal. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. And so the third kind of question, and I'm, I'm showing my cards to you already, I think the application of this sermon that you'll leave with is, how am I as a follower? I have high expectations for the leaders of my church, but how do I follow what they're leading? How am I as a follower? How do we build trust, and how do I submit to authority? How am I as a follower? What does it mean to follow the leaders? Okay? So, Ezekiel, anything you've ever wanted to know about leaders and what does it mean to be a follower of a leader? Text those questions in and we'll have a good Q&A after the service. I'd like to read 
Ezekiel's leadership development program with you, and then we'll pray, and we will jump right in. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezekiel chapters 33 and 34, reading sections from both. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I say, I speak, and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin. And I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And then from chapter 34. Therefore, you shepherds, the shepherds are the civic and religious leaders of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, and has become food for all the wild animals, and because my shepherds do not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from their countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them 
on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land, I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. This is a prayer that uh, John Calvin used to pray before his many sermons. Lord Jesus Christ, in you are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and truth. Grant unto us now that reverence and humility without which no one will see you or understand your truth. For Jesus' sake, amen. Over the decades, I have been collecting sayings on leadership that resonate. And I'd like to share two of my favorite ones with you. The first is from Harvard. Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky are professors there. Leadership is the art of disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. Second from David Hansen, who's a pastor in Cincinnati. What must die in every pastor is the subconscious desire to please people. What must not die is the will to love. There's the risk. Imagine my smile when this week, going through myself, the leadership development program of Ezekiel, I find that the program resonates with these two leadership sayings. What are the expectations for leaders in the Christian community? That's what we're after today. Now, before we look at the two metaphors, the watchman and the shepherd, that uh, Ezekiel's gonna give as to what a leader is, I think it'd be good if we got our bearings in the book of Ezekiel. Are you ready? Here's the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he made women and men to be the pinnacle. But we, like sheep, went astray. We chose our own way and everything fell and broke. But God had a salvation plan ready, and his project was to take one man and make one family into one nation, and through that nation display his character to the world and bless all the nations. And that nation was Israel. But by this time of Ezekiel, Israel has failed. They are off mission, they have gone astray, they are all consumed with themselves, their idols, their way of life, their living. And God confronts them. 
It's the end of their existence as a nation. They are down to their last king. In fact, Babylon has invaded the southern remaining kingdom, Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has carried off 10,000 of the best and brightest citizens of Jerusalem. Among them, a 25-year-old aspiring priest named Ezekiel. 10,000 people forced to march 1,000 miles and live in a labor camp in Babylon. It looks like it's done. It's over. Except five years later, 598 B.C., that's when they were carried, so 593 B.C., on the 30th birthday of Ezekiel, the day he would have been ordained as a priest in Jerusalem, he gets a vision, Ezekiel chapter 1. Do you remember it? It's this throne on fire in a storm. God is a thunderstorm. And this throne has wheels like gyroscopes, which means it can go anywhere. And on the wheels are eyes. You can see everything. In other words, the point of the vision is that God is powerful and present and sovereign. His throne goes wherever it wants. In other words, this is the glory of God. And because God is who God is, God matters most. Ezekiel, preach that message. That's what I want you to preach to Israel. In exile, that's the stunning thing, that the glory of God has come to Babylon. Now, Ezekiel, God says, the Israelites have hearts of stone and they're chasing idols, but I'm gonna give you a forehead of flint which is harder than stone, and you preach my glory. God matters most. But one thing, Ezekiel, one thing. You can't talk. Cone of silence. In fact, the only time you can talk for the first seven years of your 20-year ministry career, first seven years, the only time you can say a word is when I give you a vision. That way the people will know it's not you speaking, it's me. Outside of those visions, which is the middle section of Ezekiel, outside of those visions, it's all street theater. I want you to lie on your left side for 390 days, symbolizing one day per year since Solomon's glory entered the temple. And then I want you to lie on your right side for 40 years because in this generation, this 40 years, you will die in exile. And then I want you to shave your beard, shave your head, because Israel is now defrocked as a priest to the nations. Everything you do in street theater, it's going to communicate to Israel. Why street theater? Well, I think Flannery O'Connor summed it up best. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and to the almost blind, you draw large, startling figures. And so it's street theater. It's sign acts. And the last sign act, I still don't quite understand it. It's cruel. It's in chapter 24. Without warning, the Lord comes to Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, your young wife is going to die. The desire of your eyes gone. And this is a sign to Israel 
that the desire of their eyes, the temple in Jerusalem, gone. Two more years of visions about the surrounding nations, and then we read this in Ezekiel 33. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month on the 5th day, this is January 8th, 585 B.C., a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen, Jerusalem. Now the evening before the man arrived, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning, so my mouth was opened, and I was no longer silent. Now there's two things we take from this event. First, this vindicates and validates Ezekiel as a true prophet. Every sign act, everything, visions, has all come true. Jerusalem is gone. Second, Ezekiel gets to talk now. And as he gets to talk and preach, God recommissions him. He again calls him to be a watchman, and that's what we read in Ezekiel 33. Now that Ezekiel can speak, God recommissions him as a prophet, and he says, how I see you with the people of Israel as a leader is you're a watchman. And so we're going to talk about the idea of a leader as a watchman, because that's what God calls Ezekiel to do. What's interesting is all that we read in 33 earlier was also given to Ezekiel in chapter 3, a week after he saw the first vision. So he's already commissioned Ezekiel, but that was private. That was just between the Lord and Ezekiel in chapter 3. Now, as you, as we, when we read it in Ezekiel 33, now God is calling Ezekiel again in the presence of all the exiles in Babylon, and he's establishing Ezekiel in front of the people as a leader who will be a watchman. So let's talk about leadership as a watchman. I think we all get the general idea of what a watchman or a sentry is. If your village is under the threat of invasion, you place guards in towers or on high points, and uh, they're to watch. Now, what's interesting, as is often the case with Hebrew verbs, they're often built off of body posture. So the word for watchman literally means leaning forward. Leaning forward. A watchman, aware of the situation, leaning forward into the future first to see what's going to come. You also probably picked up from that reading the heavy responsibility that is on the watchman. Let me just summarize it this way. If as a watchman you're watching and the enemy's coming, you see them, you're leaning forward, you watch, you sound the alarm and you give the alert, then no matter what happens in the battle, no matter how many people are killed, because you've warned them that the danger's coming, you're not responsible for those who died because you did your job. But if as a watchman, you're not leaning forward, you're asleep, you're afraid, you're negligent, no matter what happens with the people, if they're cowards or if they fight hard, 
Because you didn't do your job and you didn't warn them, you are responsible, no matter how the people fight, you are responsible for those who've died. In other words, the failure to warn is a capital offense. A failure to warn is a collapse of leadership. Leaders warn. Ezekiel, warn the people. Well, warn them of what? Well, this is very interesting. If you go back to uh, 33 verse 2, I believe it is. Notice what God's, how he put phrases it. Son of man, speak to your people. There's the public aspect. Speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land. Now, make no mistake. This is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon who've come against Israel. But the question is, who brought them? The Lord. Remember we've been saying throughout one of the key themes of Ezekiel is the greatest problem we have in our life is God. <laughs> Why? Because he must matter most. And we wrestle with that. Notice what Ezekiel is to warn the people. He's to warn them about God, about judgment. He's warning them. Now, now understand what's happening here. The people are already in exile. And even though they repent, they're not going to get to go back to Jerusalem. They're not going to get their lives back. They're not going to get their dreams back. They're going to die in exile in Babylon. The consequences of their sin are going to play out. The repentance will not take them back to Jerusalem. But they are still alive in Babylon. And if they turn their hearts, even though they're in a hard situation, God will listen and will save them. I've shared this with you before. My life verse is Ecclesiastes 9.4. Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion. Because while you're alive, there's always hope. It's why we never give up on anybody. Never. You never give up on anybody. While they're alive, there is hope. And there's the voice of God crying, even in Babylon, turn, turn to me. I will save you. So, a watchman is to preach the glory of God, that God must matter most. And if a person ignores the glory of God, they are in serious danger. And so we warn them, we warn them, and we say that God matters most. What does that mean, that God matters most? I've never forgotten reading this in seminary from a you know, like thousand-page theology book, one takeaway paragraph. <laughs> but it's worth the book. If we have fully understood who and what God is, we will see him as the supreme being. We will make him the Lord, the one who is to be pleased and whose will is to be done. This reminder is needed in our day for we have a tendency to slip from a theocentric, God-centered, to an anthropocentric, a human-centered ordering of our lives. This leads to what might be called inverted theology. Instead of regarding God as our Lord, whose glory is the supreme value, 
and whose will is to be done. We regard him, God, as our servant. He is expected to meet all of our perceived needs and to answer to our standards of what is right and wrong. But it is God who knows what is best in the long run. He is the almighty and loving Lord. He has created us, not we him, and we exist for his glory, not he for ours. We will stand before him in the last judgment, not he before us. If we have truly understood God's nature, then with Jesus, our first concern in prayer will not be for the granting of our desires. It will rather be, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God matters most. And anyone who is ignoring God's glory is in serious danger. Now, Maybe that's one takeaway. Do you believe that? And if so, how does that impact your life? If people ignore the glory of God, they are in serious danger. And so we warn them. We warn them that God must matter most. So, let's bring this to Waterstone for just a moment. What do you want out of your leaders at Waterstone? What do you want to hear from the preaching? What counsel, what direction do you want the leadership to take? If God wants Ezekiel to be a watchman to his people, there's a sense in which God has called the leadership of this church and any church to be watchmen who warn people that God matters most. So what does that mean? That means that every decision you make takes on new framework, uh, new questions. So in your marriage, if those of you who are married, you're in a hard marriage. There's no question if the marriage is abusive or there's been adultery, you know, there are biblical grounds for separation and divorce. But sometimes, apart from those things, marriage is just hard and it gets old and you'll be married to four different people over four decades. The way that you decide to stay engaged in your marriage tells the world that God matters most to you. You see, every decision takes on this idea. How will my decision advance the reputation of God? So in your marriage, you choosing to engage how will my decisions within my marriage affect the reputation of God? And your money. You know, you come to Waterstone, and those of you who are visiting, you've been warned. We pound you on your money. Jesus talked more about money than he talked about anything else. Have you ever thought about why? Well, because money more than anything else is a reflection of our heart. If you really want to know what matters to you, we look at your Chase credit card statement. Your money goes 
to where your priorities are. So if you want to know a person's priorities, you talk about money. And so at Waterstone, we'll pound you about your money. (laughs) Here we go. I remind you that you are among the wealthiest people who have ever lived. Ever. Step one. Step two. We have a tendency to invert goals and dreams. The kingdom always turns our dreams upside down. You know, we think on top is a nice house, two-car garage, two nice cars, two nice kids. You know, all, all this that we think makes life grand. The dream. Jesus says, let's just flip that, shall we? Here's who I am. Uh, The birds of the air have nests, the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Follow me. Seems to me that one of the things Jesus wants the wealthiest people who've ever lived to be is in tension with our money. And he wants us always wrestling to live on less so that we can give away more. Every year, live on less, give away more. Live on less, give away more. Because the dream is to be like Jesus and follow him. Or, you know, how about this? The watchman is to warn about marriage, about money. Watchman's to warn about mercy. The holy quartet in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 22, Nick pounded on this a few weeks ago, that if you look at Ezekiel 22, and by the way, this is all reinforced in the New Testament, that the the Hebrew people, one of the reasons he calls them to account, one of the reasons that they're in exile, one of the reasons that the consequences of their sins have fallen on them is because they've ignored the holy quartet in the Old Testament. What's the holy quartet? The poor, the widows, the orphans and the immigrants. They've ignored them. They, they're not even like they don't, ex- they don't exist to them. They never cross their minds. There's no help. Just let us go live our lives. We must be warned that if we ignore the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor, we ignore them at our peril. We ignore them knowing that they are a major piece of the heart of the Father. We cannot ignore them. And so, the watchman, the watchman, he warns. He warns us that every decision we make with our money, with our relationships, with whom we serve, every, it's all about how will this advance the reputation of God. Second metaphor is the shepherd. What's interesting is that after the cone of silence is lifted off of Ezekiel, the first message he's to preach is to the shepherds. The shepherds were the kings and the government officials as well as the priests, the religious officials, and God goes after them pretty hard. What's interesting, just a couple of things as we just circle this for a few moments. One, human beings are called sheep in the Bible 400 times. It's a significant metaphor, don't you think? 
that we are like sheep. Now, it does, it's not a one for one. It doesn't mean that you know, everything a sheep is, we are. But we are a lot like sheep. 400 times we're like sheep. And God says about himself that he's a shepherd 100 times. So God is like a shepherd. So in this interaction between shepherd and sheep, there's a lot to learn about leadership. There's a lot to learn about first who we are. If we are like sheep, what's that mean? Well, the text told us in 34 verse 12, it says that sheep get lost a lot. God has to come find them. We get lost a lot. Second, in verse 14, it says that sheep have to have help finding food and pastures. It's a well-known fact, if you've done any reading on sheep, that they don't move unless they're pushed. And they will sit there and eat and move their jaws, and once the green grass is gone, they will keep eating, and they'll eat dirt, and they'll keep eating until they eat stones, and they'll keep eating until they eat whatever's under the stones. And they will eat themselves to death on junk. Maybe sheep are a lot like human beings. We will eat everything to try and feed our hunger. In chapter 34, verse 16, so we get lost, we have trouble finding good food, and we get broken a lot. We get injured, we get hurt. Uh, I, I read uh, s- some reading on sheep and in the Washington Post a few years ago. There was this tragic story that came out of Turkey. Shepherds eating breakfast outside the town of Gevis were surprised to see a lone sheep jump off a nearby cliff and fall to its death. They were stunned, however, when the rest of the nearly 1,500 sheep in the herd followed, each leaping off the same cliff. When it was all over, the local Axam paper reported that 450 of the sheep perished in a billowy white pile. Those that jumped from the middle to the end were saved as the pile became higher and higher and the fall was cushioned. The estimated loss to the families of Gevis topped $100,000, an extremely significant amount of money in a country where the average person earns $2,700 per year. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're sheepish. So God provides shepherds. He provides shepherds in the three institutions that govern this world, the The governments, the religious authorities, and the family structure. Our first shepherds were our parents. And then we go through life with government shepherds and with religious shepherds. The problem is they're only a partial solution. Why? Because earthly shepherds are sheep themselves. They're sheepish shepherds. Which means sometimes... They don't do such a good job. That's exactly what happened in Ezekiel 34. If you look at verses three and four, God calls them to account and describes the way they were shepherding. You eat the curds or the milk, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So their behavior of the shepherds was such that they either neglected the flock or they punished the flock. Cruel leadership or no leadership. Why? Because they were only using the flock to get milk, wool, and meat. 
to, to meet their needs. Even human shepherds are sheepish, and they go astray. So God says to Israel, even in exile, I will come and be your shepherd. And how is he going to do it? Look at verses uh, 23 and 24, chapter 34. Here's how God's going to be the shepherd for Israel. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God is going to come and be their shepherd. How? By sending David. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. David's been dead for 900 years. What's going on here? Oh, it's a prophecy. It's a prediction that one would come from the line of David. We know him as Jesus. The writer of Hebrews called him the shepherd, the great shepherd of our souls. Jesus would come and be Israel's shepherd. What makes Jesus the great shepherd? Simply this, and we see it in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb becomes the shepherd. The shepherd is the lamb. What's that mean? Simply this, and this is everything, that Jesus would come and lay down his life for the flock to protect them from all predators, namely the predator of sin, the greatest predator, the predator that's always, as God said to Cain, crouching at our door and desires to have us. Jesus would come, and the wolves of sin would come after the flock, but they would get him. And Jesus would live the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died to save the flock. Do you hear his voice? This morning, if you're here and you've never before asked Jesus to save you from your sin and to save you from yourself, this is that moment. Just say in the quietness of your heart, Jesus, Jesus, I need a shepherd. Save me. Save me. So, just before Nick and Danielle come up, let me just give two neat and tidy takeaways. First, what can you expect from your leadership, your pastors at Waterstone? Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, be shepherds of God flock that is under your care. Now, this under your care is one word in the Greek, kleros. Do you hear an English word in that word, kleros? Clergy. Clergy means entrusted. Be shepherds of God's flock that is entrusted to you. I remind you that Waterstone Community Church, you are not Nick's church. You're not Larry's church. You're not Danielle's church. You are God's flock. Bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. You are his most treasured possession. And the clergy is to treat you as such. So how will you know? Respect is the word I'm after. How will you know if your pastors respect you? Well, it will be apparent in the way they talk to you. 
It will be apparent in the way they talk about you. It will be apparent in the way they talk to God about you. But also, it will be apparent in the way they warn you. You'll recall that the shepherds were great entrepreneurs in the ancient world. They had three basic jobs. To shave the sheep for wool, to um, kill the sheep for meat, and to mate the sheep for little lambs. In other words, listen, the purpose of the shepherd is not to benefit the flock. The purpose of the shepherd is to do the owner's desire. Let me just make this crystal clear. It is not our job to please you. It is our job to prompt you to the glory of God. He matters most. Second, first is respect. You should expect respect. Second, you should expect love. Goes on in the first Peter passage, if you want to throw it back up, but it gets to motives. Why are we in this? And Peter says, shepherds are not in it for ego, they're not in it for money, and they're not in it for power. They're in it for love, laying down their lives. So Paul Joslin and Brad Haykoop and I were at the ordination service for Chris Copeland, one of our missionaries last week. And Chris did a great job on his ordination. But it took me back a few years to when we were in New England and I was ordained. And after the ordination, we had an ordination service. And one of the things that I did in that ordination service was to state my ministry vows. One of my ministry vows, which I have made to you, I stole from Jonathan Edwards and the great Puritan pastors. The Puritan pastors said that the job of a shepherd is to help the sheep die a good death. You say, great, Larry, thank you. No, the purpose of pastoral work is to help you die a good death. What does that mean? One, It means that when you die, and by the way, do I need to remind you of this again? You're dying. When you die, one, you are at peace with your community and your family. A shepherd guides you to be at peace in your community and family. Two, you are at peace with the gospel of the kingdom. You've laid down your life so that the good news of Jesus can be shared with the world. Two, three, you are at peace with God. His glory matters most, and you've laid down your life for his glory. My job as your pastor, Nick Daniels, is to help you die a good death, at peace with your family and community, at peace with the gospel of the kingdom, at peace with the glory of God. Now, for all the Ezekiel questions, I'd like Danielle and Nick to come up, and uh, let's see what questions we might have. What is the role of the executive leadership team at Waterstone, and what are the qualifications to serve on the team? Um, that team's my responsibility, so I'll answer it. If you look at the leadership structure of Waterstone, obviously Christ is at the top, and then we have a board of elders um, that oversees the vision and spiritual health of the 
congregation. Under them serves the executive team. There are five of us, Larry, Danielle, me, Brad, and Billy. And we work kind of in a collaborative way to provide leadership for the church. I lead that team, but almost always that team makes decisions by consensus. So our job is to implement the vision that comes down from the elders and they hold us accountable to that. And then we kind of operate as that team, everything decision comes up to them and then each person on that team has ministries, responsibilities and people that report to them. So it's really to, to live out the kingdom and the gospel but under the authority of the elders and the scriptures. So we, we are our kind of operational people. The qualifications, uh, um, everybody on our staff has to meet the same qualifications. So a lot of times we put people on that team because it fits organizationally or because where they are in terms of level of influence. We don't want it to be too big because then it's difficult to, to uh, hold everybody accountable and make decisions. So it's, it's worked really well. We went to this about five years ago and it, it's just before everything funneled up to me and then to the elders and that was not working as well as having a team there that's worked really, really well. Good, next question. How do you handle our leaders who are human after all when they stumble, fail, fall, or to lead? You answer that one. <laughs> um, I, the, the phrase that comes to my mind is one of our core values on our staff and really in our church, and that's grace and truth. So the truth piece is that we look at this head on. We, we bring things out that need to be discussed. We keep short accounts. We, we don't cover things, but we bring things out so that we can deal with it and we, we have those hard conversations when these kinds of things happen. But the second word, the word grace, is that we always try to be restorative. Paul was very clear in Galatians 6, 2, and 1 and 2, those... Of, if a brother or sister is caught in sin, those of you who are spiritual seek to restore them. Not condemn them, not judge them, restore them. And so we always want to take a redemptive, restorative posture. And so we're always, even if it's a high-level leader, the goal is to restore. Now, Paul also says in Timothy that if, uh, if an elder, if he's caught in sin, there needs to be, you know, two or three witnesses, and there, if there's a high-profile sin, the consequences of that sin might be a bit harder, and they may need to step out of ministry for a time. They may need to step out of ministry for a long time. There are consequences, but we're always seeking, even in those consequences, to be restorative to the person. The other thing I would say is about this, we really work hard at Waterstone. If you've gone through our leadership program, one of the mantras in our leadership program is to keep people integrated. Every person is a mixture of pluses and minuses. We have this tendency when it comes to leaders to want all our leaders to wear white hats and we set them on a pedestal. The fact is, every leader you know are, is a sheepy sheep and they will disappoint you. They will fail you. And so every person, even leaders, are a mixture of pluses and minuses. They wear gray hats. And so we, we don't worship our leaders. They're just like us. Anything? Yeah. All right. It was good. That's why we had you answer it. 
If the church is to have authority in my life, but the staff at the church does not know me, how does that authority speak to me? That is a great question. Yeah, I... I think that all of these questions have to do with relationship. And so it is hard to speak into somebody's life if that relationship isn't there. So my first encouragement would be that if nobody on staff knows you, that that would be step number one. How do we change that? How do we, it doesn't have to be a staff member, but it might be a small group leader. It might be uh, Joni Leahy or Damon Thomas, our men's and women's, women's ministry leaders. Somebody needs to be in relationship with you. Because then when you go back to Larry's comment about how we handle people that have fallen, it, that's all on, in the context of relationship. So that's the first thing is I think we've got to make sure that you're getting into a relationship and that's got to be your responsibility. We can't always know who needs to have those dialogues. So I would start there. Yeah, I, I think a relationship is really critical and you have to have relationships within the body. It doesn't always have to be with the leadership because authority isn't simply based on, leader, uh, on relationship. When a cop pulls me over, he doesn't have authority over me because I have a relationship with him. He has authority over me, and that rests in position. Churches have authority as a community that God has placed over people and leadership. doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with that, everybody in that leadership structure for them to have authority. The authority rests outside in the institution of the church. But what we want to happen is trust to develop because then it's easier to implement authority uh, if that trust is there. And trust does demand relationship. So the key is not that everybody knows the staff. The key is that you know somebody who's integrated into the relationship of your life, who, who you're talking about spiritual realities with. And, and then you exist in this institutional organization that has authority. And our authority is under Christ and under the scriptures and under the elders. And we all exist under some structure of authority. I would add quickly, too, that one of the answers to this, too, is that it, there, there is the relational piece. But there's always this sense, do you sense uh, every week that we are preaching the scriptures? Because the scriptures are our authority. Uh, we're under Christ who rules the church through his word and so one of the questions, the answers to that question is, does your church leadership preach the word of God? Yeah. Because that's the authority. We're always mediators of authority. That's a really good point. We're not the authority. Right. We're just mediators. Of yeah. One more question. Uh, what warning would the leadership of Waterstone give to the current Christian subculture? <laughs> Watchmen. You're the watchman. Give the warning. Give the warning. Um, Lean forward. <laughs> He's getting on me because of what I said last night. Um, I think one of the, uh, there's lots of things because we live in a very secularized culture and um, that is stepping more and more, more and more away from its Christian roots and losing that world value, worldview that informs us. But I'm really concerned in the evangelical movement that uh, we're becoming incredibly selfish. Um, I'm nervous that we're becoming more nationalistic in our faith and um, uh, we're kind of embracing a bit of civil religion in the evangelical circle that I think is very dangerous. Um, our citizenship, and I love America, but our citizenship is to a higher authority. And the notion that America first is a biblical notion is just not true. 
we are committed to something far bigger than that. So when we stop caring about immigrants and refugees and the poor and the oppressed around the world and become self-centered just on us and keeping what we have, I think we're in danger of judgment. Larry mentioned Ezekiel 22. I went through that passage really carefully when I was preaching on idolatry, and I started listing out the sins, and it scared the crap out of me because, excuse me uh, for the language, um, <laughs> um, because the sins listed there are the sins of us, of America. And how can God be just in judging Israel and not in judging us? And I think we have a lot to be accountable for because we've been so blessed and now we just want to protect ourselves when we're blessed to be a blessing. So that really makes me nervous, especially in the context of how we've individualized our faith and it's just Jesus and me and him making. It's the, the, the anthropos anthropocentric view rather than a theocentric view of our faith. It's God, God matters most. And I think we need to hear that. And the evangelical church needs to hear that and what it means. Good. Yep. Um, let's stand for the benediction. If you have any more questions or would like to push back on anything you've heard this morning, come on down to the front. We'd love to meet you. If you have anything we can pray with you about, we'd be down here for prayer as well. I'd like to ask our elders to come down in the room and Stephen ministers as well. Hey, if you're new to Waterstone, as you leave, we have a, a hub gathering, a, hud, a hub huddle. Uh, is that what they're called? Help me out. Hub hangout. I, I know what's going on around the, this church. Hub hangout. If you're new to Waterstone and would like to meet some of the staff, and we have food out there, and uh, we'd just love to get to know you a little bit. Stop on your way out. It's just out in front of the alcove the, by the room with the colored doors. You'll see food and staff out there. Now receive the benediction. May we, the people of Waterstone, be people in whom the Holy Spirit pours out the love of the Father so that we leak it everywhere. May we be people who view all things from the perspective of eternity. May we be people who hunger and thirst after righteousness and truth. May we be people not of ease and endless triumph, but of endurance and the right number of tears. Lord, give us strength and weakness, joy and sorrow, patience when opposed or attacked, word recall under temptation, and self-control in conflict. And above all, help us carry your glory out of this room. Make it heavy on us so that we have to this week tell someone about Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Have a great week. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.